or Stephen. Well, all of us, uh, at some point or another in our love life, have probably done this, have made a list of non-negotiables about what you're looking for in a spouse, right? And I, I'm guilty of doing this kind of a list. I remember doing it in college. Maybe you did one as well. I found one online recently I wanted to share with you. And this is from a woman who's about 22 years old. And this is her list of what she's looking for in a man. Uh, what she says, handsome, charming, financially successful, a caring listener, witty, athletic, dresses with style, appreciates the finer things, and full of thoughtful surprises. Well, 10 years later, she's still single, and she decides to revise her list a little bit. So here it is at 32. Nice looking, opens car doors, holds chairs, has enough money for a nice dinner at a restaurant, listens more than he talks, laughs at my jokes at appropriate times, can carry in all the groceries with ease, remembers birthdays and anniversaries. 10 years later. Still single, has to edit the list again. Here it is, age 42. Not too ugly, hair optional, doesn't drive off until I'm in the car, works steady, splurges on dinner at Applebee's on occasion. That's how he rolls. Nods head at appropriate time when I'm talking. Usually remembers the punchline of jokes. Is in good enough shape to rearrange the furniture usually wears shirt that covers the stomach and remembers to put the toilet seat lid down. Oh, an applause for that one. That was not my wife. Uh, ten, years, ten years later, she's still single, age, fift- I know, uh, age 52, here's the list. Keeps hair and nose and ears trimmed to appropriate length. Doesn't belch or scratch in public doesn't borrow money too often, doesn't nod off to sleep while I'm talking, doesn't retell same joke too many times, is in good enough shape to get off the couch on the weekends, and usually wears matching socks and clean underwear. Ten years later, still single, has to edit the list again at 62, doesn't scare small children, remembers where the bathroom is, only snores lightly when awake, doesn't I don't know, doesn't forget why he's laughing, is in good enough shape to stand up all by himself, usually wears some clothes, remembers where he left his teeth. Ten years later, still single, she comes up with her final list, age 72, she's looking for a man who is breathing, right, yes. So if you are here today, my guess is you want more in your love life than just breathing. And the good news is, God does too. That God has a plan for your love life. And there is this myth that we're going to be talking about today, that when it comes to our relationship, this myth that many of us have bought into, that in all of the world, in seven billion people, that there is the one that there is the one person, there is Mr. Right or there is Mrs. Right, and all we have to do is find them, and then we will get our happily ever after. And it's kind of fun to think about, isn't it? It's kind of fun to dream about, and it makes a great premise for a romantic comedy. But the idea that there is 
the one. That there is one person who was made for me and me for them is a myth. It's not grounded in the truth at all. Here's how this usually works. Girl meets the boy and girl goes to her girlfriends and says, I got to tell you about this new guy. He is so good looking. He has a job. He doesn't live in his mother's basement. And let's get this. He actually pushed the pause button on his video game when I said we needed to talk. He has to be the one. Guy meets the girl, talks to his buddies about the girl and says, she is so hot. (laughs) And get this. She likes football. Sunday, that's all we did. Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, NFL red zone, whole time. She's got to be the one. So there's some truth there, I guess. Then they get married. And this is how it works. The infatuation stage is no longer there. And what they're left with, I mean, there's no longer dates to the movies and nice, nice restaurants. No longer are there the long moonlit strolls along the Dillon Lake Beach. (laughs) I can't do it with a straight face. All you have left, (laughs) all you have left is a mortgage, broken down appliances. You have Kids shuttling them back and forth to sports practices, long after work hours, stress. You, the things that you once thought were cute about your spouse are now becoming increasingly annoying. And dates now look like going to Home Depot looking for light bulbs. <laughs> things become mundane. Things become routine. And so after a while you're at work and you see a new coworker come in and they're pretty cute. And they're funny. And they compliment you. They show you attention that you've been craving. And all of a sudden, you start thinking, wait a minute, I know what's wrong. I married the wrong one. But what if this idea of the one, this right person, is a myth? Because it absolutely is a myth. As a matter of fact, the myth distracts us from the true things that provide a healthy foundation for a thriving relationship and marriage. Because here's the big idea for today. That dating and marriage is less about finding the right person and more about becoming the right person. Let me say that again. It's less about finding the right person and more about becoming the right person. And as we continue to let the book of Ruth drive us through this series we're calling Happily Even After, we're going to see today, we're going to look at some of the characteristics of who Ruth is and who Boaz is. And we're going to see that at the time that God brings them together as he is writing their love story, we're going to see that neither of them are really looking for the right person. Ruth isn't looking for Mr. Right. Boaz isn't looking for Mrs. Right. Matter of fact, when God brings them together, they are individually in their own lives pursuing after God. So when God brings them together, they happen to be the right person for one another. That's the way it's supposed to work. We talked about last week in, 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 in the Ruth, that Ruth's story begins in a season of famine and tragedy and there's, it tell, it's told in excruciating detail of 
all that goes on. I would really encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to go check it out online so you can catch up where we are in Ruth chapter 1. But now we're going to be in Ruth chapter 2. But let me recap it real quick for you. So there's a guy named Elimelech. And his, his wife is Naomi. And there's a famine in Bethlehem. So they pack up their stuff with their two sons and they move to another country called Moab where the famine isn't there. And while they're in Moab, they allow their two adult sons to marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. But then Elimelech dies and the two sons die. So Naomi is left a widow and all she has are her two widowed daughter-in-laws. And that she hears, Naomi hears that the famine has been lifted in Bethlehem, so they go back home, but Orpah, she decides to stay back in her homeland. Go back to her mom, her dad, her family, her gods, and Ruth goes with Naomi back to Bethlehem. And as they get back to Bethlehem, Naomi has come back a completely different person. The Bible says she'd become exceedingly bitter. Know anybody like that? Just joyless, just miserable. And those of you who have, who have grown up in a small town, we all live in a small town, unless you're commuting from Columbus, we all know what living in a small town is like. Everyone knows everyone, and everyone knows each other's business, right? We all know it. So she comes in to Bethlehem, and everyone starts to talk. Did you see who's back in town? Naomi is back. Remember when they left? That's not Naomi. That looks nothing like Naomi. Naomi had all this wealth. Naomi had a, had a husband and sons and a great family. Naomi, she, she shopped and wore clothes from Easton Town Center. That, she's, she's in rags. She doesn't have anything. Naomi was someone who, had, who was always joyful. That woman looks like she's been through hell and back. Wait a minute. That is Naomi. Where is her husband? Where are her sons? Who is that woman, that young woman with her, that foreigner? So when they come back, when Ruth and Naomi show up in Bethlehem, they have nothing. And we got to assume that someone in Bethlehem took them in. It's not told who. But God actually commanded the Jews, when a wandering foreigner, when a wandering person would come into your town, that you were to show them hospitality. So they're living off of the generosity and the favor of other people. They have nothing. But Ruth, she tells Naomi one day, she says, I can't lay around here doing nothing. We have nothing. I've got to do something. It's the, it's the harvest season. Naomi, remember when I married your son, when I entered into your family, you began to teach me all about your God. And now your God has become my God, and I follow him, and I love him. But remember back when you taught me about the Torah, and then the book of Leviticus, that you talked about that God would even take care of those who are the most impoverished, the poorest of the poor. That, that during the harvest season, that the, the, those who are, who are in poverty could go into the fields and glean, become a gleaner. Well, that's what I want to do. And Naomi says, okay, go. Well, here's what it means to be a gleaner. Some of you don't know what that is. I didn't know what it was either until I looked it up. This is what it means to be a gleaner. So during the harvest season, it was time, I'm coming after y'all. You're like, minister's freaking out. Um, he's in the, in the barley fields. 
when it's harvest season, you go through it and you're mowing down, you're chopping down the crops, right? That you're walking through the whole fields. While you're doing that, someone else, another worker is following behind and he's gathering, he's collecting all of the barley and binding it together. But the Bible teaches in Leviticus, God's command was that as you would gather, you, would, you would, wouldn't always get it all. But sometimes you would leave scraps behind. But you were not to go down and pick up the scraps. You were to leave them behind for the poorest of the poor to come behind and glean the fields. So gleaning was the Hebrew equivalent to the welfare system, to, to food banks, to food stamps. And so, Naomi, as bitter as she is, Ruth tells her, I want to become a gleaner. I got to provide. But becoming a gleaner was very dangerous. Just like today, in today's world, those who are in poverty are oftentimes preyed upon by the powerful. And it was not uncommon for the gleaners to be abused, to be molested, to be kidnapped, for evil purposes. And so here's Ruth saying, I'm going to go glean. And Naomi's so bitter, so given up on life. She says, go ahead, just go. Well, as we come to verse 3 in chapter 2, it's Ruth's first day on the job. And I love what it says. I love the Bible says, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. She just so happened to come. Some people would look at this and go, karma. Some people would say, oh, her luck is finally beginning to turn. Her stars have aligned, finally. But what we see, what we said even last week, that the book of Ruth from beginning to end is about the sovereignty of God. He is in control, that he has a plan. But he's also given all of us free will. You can either choose to follow him or you can choose to go your own way. And we've been watching Ruth go through this story and she keeps following after God every step of the way. So she doesn't just wind up in this field by random circumstance or because her luck has turned or because the zodiac signs told her to do this. That God, he has his pen on the parchment of her life. He is writing her love story. And he wants to do that for you as well. And so Ruth, she finds herself in this field. Listen, we as Christians, we don't, belong, we don't believe in karma. We don't believe in zodiac signs. We don't believe in luck. We don't believe in any of that stuff because we believe in and trust, put our trust in a God who is sovereign and a God who is good. The book of James says that every good and perfect gift comes from God. So Boaz comes onto the scene. And the Bible comes right out with it in verse 1 that Boaz is a worthy man. I mean, he has excellent character, he has a job. He owns this field. He's a CEO of this field. He's a strong leader. He's a hard worker. He's a follower of God. Matter of fact, everywhere he goes, the, his passion for God just, just 
It just comes out of him. He gets out of his luxurious Land Rover when he pulls up to his field. He hops out and he, he greets his, his workers this way. He says, may God go with you. I mean, imagine if you're at your workplace and you're in your office or in your cubicles and all of a sudden your boss walks in and says, may the, may the, may the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ be on all of you. You'd be like moles coming out of holes of your cubicles going, what in the world is your boss doing? But the workers are like, may the Lord bless you because they know Moab, or because they know that Boaz is a, a man of, of God. He's honorable. He's, he's just. He's a good boss. So Boaz, he looks to his field and there he notices someone different. And all of a sudden the music hits. Dream weaver. <laughs> right? And he's like, hold the phone. Who is that? And his foreman goes, well, that's Ruth. That's Naomi's daughter-in-law. That's the one who, who came back with her, who's been taking care of her. You know how Naomi's been recently, right? I mean, she's, she's given up, but she's taking care of her. And she came here today to become a gleaner. And she's been working all day. She's a hard worker. And, and I want, ladies, I want you to notice, I want you to notice what attracts Boaz to Ruth. I want you to notice that Ruth's reputation and her character precedes her. I mean, just from this little encounter, just from what he knows about her, I want to make a list of things that he know, we notice about Ruth from this point on. And you might have more that you come up with, but this is what I found. This is what Boaz knows about Ruth. He knows that, first of all, he has, she has this amazing commitment to her mother-in-law. Some of you are Cleveland Browns fans. Marry them, right? The, the, the commitment, man. You, you go through hard times. We know that, there is a, that she's a lover of God. We know that, or Boaz knows that about the deaths of Elimelech, about the deaths of, uh, of Malon and Chilion, the, 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 the husband of Ruth. We know that, he knows that Naomi is just a shell of who she used to be, and yet here's Ruth with her servant's heart just serving her. We know, and, Bo, and Boaz knows how She's a hard worker. She's been there all day in the hot sun, taking care of, of gleaning in the fields, a lot of hard work. He knows that she's courageous. This is a dangerous job, and yet she's willing to do whatever it takes. She's not looking for a handout. And he knows that she's also a woman of humility because she comes to the foreman of the field that day and asks permission, may I go into the field to become a gleaner today? And she's humbled herself to serve her mother-in-law. So notice what attracts Boaz to Ruth. It's not necessarily her beauty. Beauty may have had a part in it, but it's not the main thing. It's her character that attracts Boaz to her. And some of you ladies, I mean, when, when you heard Boaz showing up at the field, you, you, you like to think ahead, and you're already going ahead in the story going, Ruth isn't at her best! You know, she's been in the field all day, hands in the dirt, hot sun baking down. She hasn't showered. Her hair's not done. She has no makeup on. She doesn't have any of those little devices that we guys have no idea what they are that you ladies use. And we're like, well, that's a mystery to us what they are. Boaz is like, he doesn't have any of that stuff. But what attracts Boaz to Ruth is her character. It's her reputation. 
And guys, guys, eyes up here. Physical attraction is a great thing. It's necessary. You mean, you got to be attracted to, to her, and it should be a good thing for you to tell her, hey, you're attractive, you're beautiful, you're gorgeous. It's a great thing, tell her that. But character is so much more important. So much more. And I hear so, so many guys who get so infatuated with a woman or a girl, and, they, and they're like, but she's so hot. So is hell. Right? <laughs> That's a good line right there. And Boaz walks over to Ruth. I think he struts over to Ruth. He says, listen, my daughter, which in the Hebrew can be translated also, who's your daddy? Um, (laughs) Do not go to glean. Do not go glean in another field. Don't leave this one. And I want to notice here, What do we know about Boaz's character? Let's make a list for him as well. We did that for Ruth. Let's do one for Boaz as well. We already know he's a worthy man, verse 1 told us. We know he's a man who follows after God. His passion for God leads him. We also know just from this little encounter, from what we just read, that he he wants to protect Ruth. He wants to provide for Ruth. Because there are some shady characters out there. Being a gleaner, that's dangerous work. He wants to protect her, but he also wants to keep her close and in his field. Why do you think that is? He doesn't want any other guys checking out Ruth. He wants to keep her close. So he calls all of his buddies over, all the workers, and says, hey guys, you, you see that woman over there? Yeah, hands off her. Because you know my big field that I have, they'll never find your body. You know, I'm Old Testament. I roll that way. So, ladies, and ladies, I'm a fan of equality, as we all should be, and, and, and God has created us, male and female, equally, but he's also given us, as he's made us to be image bearers of his, he's also called us and created us, male and female, uniquely different, and with the rise of feminism over the last several decades, we've also seen a decline in this characteristic of Boaz, and that is chivalry. Because God calls us men who follow after him to, to, to honor all women as sisters in Christ. He calls us to honor them, to bring them dignity and respect, to protect them, protect their purity and ours. After all, every single woman, and hear this, ladies, because I'm talking about you, you are a daughter of the king And you don't settle for anything less than a guy who will treat you anything anything but. So check this out. Ruth, she's going, "What, what just happened? Who is this guy? And she falls down, bows down with her head to the ground, which was an ancient Middle Eastern custom. Don't put that on the list, guys. You're not gonna find it. Um, But she says, why are you treating me with such favor? Why are you being so kind to me? And Boaz says to her, verse 11, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother, your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. Again, he speaks of what, who she is, her character. And then here comes 
the passion of God that Boaz has, he just busts out into a prayer for Ruth in the middle of the field. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, who's, who's, who, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Guys, you want to know the most important manly and romantic way that you can honor your girl, your date, your fiance, your wife, is that you can pray for her, pray with her, lead her in prayer. When you find someone like that, you know you've, you've found someone who's not just concerned in finding the right person, but who is becoming the right person. When they lead that way in prayer, got a good one. Boaz prays for Ruth. And so think about this in very first encounter. You can call it the first date if you want, but this first encounter between Ruth and Boaz. Think about how it's changed Ruth. Not only is she, she's been, she's been provided for, not only has she been protected, she's been, all this kindness has been just, is becoming to her. She's safe. I mean, Boaz, I mean, there's a law. The, the, the Levitical law says you need to do this for the poor. He busts through the expectations of the law and extends to her grace after grace after grace. Because of this first encounter, Naomi is left better off than if she would have never met Boaz. And I wonder, wouldn't it be amazing if the same could be said of us, guys? Wouldn't that be amazing? Let's say you're a single guy and you meet a, a, a gal and she's, she's, she's a Christian, she loves Jesus, and you guys begin to date. And you treat her with respect and dignity and you protect her purity. You honor her physically, emotionally, spiritually. But then it comes to the point where you say, you know what, you both, cause this isn't really working. It's not compatible, I mean, but it's all... We're, we're, not going to mar- the wed- we're not going to the wedding here. We're, we're going to break up. Wouldn't it be amazing if, if she could go, you know what, I know it didn't work out, but because of the way he treated me, because of the way he honored me, even though we ended up breaking up, I'm a better person. I'm closer to God because he was in my life. Instead of leaving her with emotional baggage, and sexual ghosts because we did not protect and honor her purity and our own. Naomi's a better person because she met Boaz. And this is where we're going to kind of wrap up our study of Ruth today. And next week, we're going to talk about how Naomi and Bo- Boaz kind of go to the second date, kind of take their, their, their relationship to the next level. And I want to be clear on something up front that next week, we're going to talk about sex. And parents, I want to make sure you know about this so that if you have fifth graders or younger and you tend to bring them in here, you know, it's not going to be like rated R. It's not going to be like PG-13. You know, but, and if it's awkward for you, guess what? It's awkward for me. Think about that. But the Bible talks a whole lot about it and we have to talk about it, especially in, this, in Ruth chapter three. We're going to talk about the, the, about the importance of purity. But I, and I would challenge you as parents, if, if you... If, to check your kids in the, ch- in the kids' area. I'll let you make the call on that on that one. I mean, you're going to get more out of it down there anyway. They do a great job providing a great thing for your kids, fifth grade and under. But God, and next week we're calling the, sur- the, the, the message Designer Sex. 
Because God is the designer of it. And he gives it to his people as a gift. And used in the right context, the way that he has given it, is very good and very powerful. But used outside of his will, it can be and will be destructive. But here's your challenge for today. For everybody, whether, no matter what part of your love life you're in, what part of love life, or life you're in, is this. Be someone's soulmate. And you might go, wait a minute, you just told us there's no such thing as a soulmate. I spelled it in the way, the context that I'm going for here is as in the bottom of your shoe. Makes perfect sense, right? Let's pray. No. <laughs> what I mean by that is you need to, to find someone who is walking, running at the same pace and the same direction that you are. So I've got my little running shoes here to help make this example happen. You can act like you're putting your running shoes on there too. And we're going to go for a bit of a run. I feel a little bit like Mr. Rogers right now. (laughs) Would you be mine? Would you be my neighbor? And um, we're going to go for a run. I want you to imagine that we are on a running track. Right? We're on a running track. And you're not just running, though. You are in pursuit. You are in pursuit after God. Matter of fact, because as a follower of Jesus, our number one pursuit should be our relationship with God. Jesus says we need to seek first his kingdom first. But you're not the only one running on this track. You are there with hundreds and hundreds of other single guys, other single gals who you're going to be coming in contact with. And everybody's running at different paces. You've got some who are absolutely crushing it. They're running hard, mile after mile, as they pursue after God. You've got others who are plodding along slowly at a more, more leisurely pace. You've got some who are walking, taking breaks, walking, taking breaks. You've got others who are walking and running in the other direction. They're running away from God. And yet here you are running in the midst of this all. And what I see happen so often is these Christians, these single Christians who are running after God, pursuing after him, and they look back and they notice a guy or gal. And they, 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 they kind of go back and they want to run together, but they're out of step. He's sluggish. She's sluggish. They're not, they're not running in, at, at the same time. They're kind of pulling him along. He wants to walk and take a break. Or they look too far ahead down the road. And they, you know, they try to catch up to where they're at. They try to serve where they know that they're serving. They try to jump into Bible studies they know that they're in. But who are you doing those things for? Are you doing those out of a love and respect and honor for God? Or are you doing it because you're trying to impress somebody else? Instead, as you are running and pursuing after God, you look to your left, you look to your right, and you see who's running next to you. And if there's that character, there's that attraction, you say, hey, how about we run a mile together? And after that mile, you can say, how about another mile? Or, I'm good. (laughs) Or it might be, down the road, you might say, let's run the rest of our life together. And yet so many times I see Christians running along, pursuing after God, and they even try to stop someone who's running the opposite direction and say, let's let's do this together. And I sit in premarital counseling with them. I'm going, let me get this straight. 
you're saying that Jesus is the number one pursuit in your life, number one priority, and yet for this person over here, not even on the list. Or if it is, it's way down the list. That ain't going to work. Paul says this to the believers in the ancient city of Corinth, but uses a different metaphor. He says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. By yoke, he means don't be in relationship with, don't be dating, don't be married to an unbeliever because what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, for the people he's talking to, this made perfect sense because they knew exactly what this was. Some of us, we might not know. So, I asked my buddy, Dave Berkey, out in Adamsville, because everybody in Adamsville probably has one of these. (laughs) This is a yoke. And he says, listen, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. It's It's like you're taking an ox and putting him in this direction and taking the other ox and putting him in this direction. And it's not going to work. They're going to be fighting the whole time. You're not going to go anywhere. And the same thing is true in marriage. If you are a follower in Christ, you're trying to move in God's direction, and they're trying to move the other direction. It doesn't work. You, You want to make church a bigger priority in your life. They have no interest in that. You want to serve more. You want to go on a mission trip. That that other person says, I'm not interested. You say, I want my kids to know and to love Jesus. They say, you're being closed-minded. I want to give. I want to be more generous. But not with my money. I want my kids to be protected from pornography, materialism, and greed. You're overreacting. This is what it's like if you are unequally yoked with someone who doesn't share your beliefs. It's going to be a fight every, every step. But if you are pursuing after Christ and you find someone else who's going at the same pace, the same direction you are when you're faced with tough situations and we all face them, when you're faced with conflict, when you're faced with raising kids because you both have made the decision you're going to pursue after God, you're going to do it together. And then you have what's called momentum. Going together. And it can be such a beautiful, beautiful thing. God does not call us to spend our life with someone that we have an emotional infatuation with. God calls us to spend our life with with someone we can share his mission with. When I was in my late 20s, I remember I was very angry with God. There was a little bit of Naomi in me because I had gone through many, many relationship looking for the right person. And I remember getting really mad at God and just kind of screaming out to him, what am I doing wrong? Why do I keep finding the wrong people? When am I going to find the right one? And it was like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. God says to me, because you're the one doing the choosing and right now you're not the right person. So I began to stop pursuing after marriage. And I began just to say, you know what, God, I'm coming after you. I doubled down in my prayer life. I just started serving out of my passion that God had given me for him. 
And you know how it says in the book of Ruth that they just so happened to find up in that field. I just so happened to go to a friend's house who, had, who was having a card game. And as I looked up from my hand, I looked across the table, and this beautiful woman was making eyes at me. And I did the... (laughs) It was Janie. And you, probably if you were here last Sunday, you heard her story. And if you haven't, go online and hear her story. Because... You heard about her season of famine, of broken relationships, divorce, the ashes that she was in. And I, I worked with Janie. We worked on the, at the same church together, and I got to see her go through that season. And me and a lot of other people watched her, their commitment with God, and, and our respect and honor of her just went through the roof. So when I saw her and that, over that card table, and we, it wasn't just her beauty, it was her character. And she wasn't at that time looking for Mr. Right, and I wasn't looking for Mrs. Right. We were both individually pursuing after Jesus. And he brought us together, writing our love story. It's not been happily ever after, but it's happily even after. So here's your next step today. Whether, no matter if you're married or if you're single or somewhere in between, lace up those tennis shoes and get running. Not after people, but after Christ. And some of you may have heard that story, that, that illustration, you're going, I think I am actually going the other direction. I'm running away from God. He's given you that choice. He's not going to force himself on you. He's given you free will to love him or leave him. He wants to give you more than free will. He wants to give you a life and have it to the full. He wants to give you eternal life. He wants to make a way back to God for you. He's done that to the cross. And you just need to turn around, stop running away, repent, which means turn 180 degrees around and go towards God. Be obedient to him. Surrender to him. Be baptized into him. We're about to see someone get baptized right now, actually. Make that commitment today. Would you stand as we sing the song of decision? If you're ready to make your decision today, come